Welcome to the Learning Hook podcast. Join our team as they explore topics across learning and development, e-learning, media production, and all those creative learning spaces in between. For us, it's the just in time, just enough, and just for you. So let's learn, connect, perform, and do something great. Welcome to the Learning Hook podcast. This episode's all about accessibility, especially digital accessibility, and arguably good design. So there's this running theme throughout the chat that good design and accessibility are kind of synonymous. And if they're not for you, if they don't go together like that for you, perhaps they should. Sit in with Katrina Malazzo from The Learning Hook and I as we chat with Neil King and Chris Edwards from Vision Australia. Neil's the National Manager of Vision Australia's Digital Access Group, while Chris is the Manager of Government Relations and Advocacy for Vision Australia. Neil and Chris have so many years of experience and insights to share. You're going to find that out if you listen to the podcast. While Chris has first-hand experience to add to these insights. This talk covers so much ground from mind-boggling statistics to practical examples of what you can do to influence change and create more accessible learning from a creator's point of view and also from a manager's point of view. You should definitely look Neil and Chris up on LinkedIn or myself and Kat for that matter. We all love this topic and are happy to talk about it. I think that's quite right too, that we love it. As learning and development people, we're often the ones who can change how learning's accessed. We're the owners of learning design standards and the creators of communication, the engagers of vendors, and the people who are always on the lookout for those simple hacks that can make the greatest impact on performance. And one very powerful one and way to do that is to provide better and easier access. Or let's say, good design. So the last thing is, if you're not familiar with the work of Vision Australia, the work they do in regards to digital access, this team is worth following up. Digital access at Vision Australia is recognised nationally and internationally as a leader in online accessibility. With expert knowledge of accessibility, conformance, inclusive design and the needs of people with a disability or impairment, they've spent over 19 years helping organisations make their digital assets usable to everyone. So join us now as we learn a whole lot more. Welcome, guys. Thanks for coming in to join us for a podcast today. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Kat. Yeah. And I should say, too, um, it's good to have you here, Kat, um, for the first podcast with The Learning Hook. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, time in my busy schedule for you. So we're just, we're just chatting about, I guess, um, you know, how, I guess, interested we are in the topic of accessibility and the work that, that you guys do at Vision Australia and, and, and particularly your insights around industry. So really hope to get into all of that through this podcast. To start with, though, keen to hear a bit of your backgrounds. Um, and so maybe we could start with you, Neil, and then we'll move to you, Chris, to just hear about really interested, I guess, a summary of your journey to where you're at now from a career perspective and the work that you do at Vision Australia. Yeah, um, I... I guess if I go all the way back, I ended up um, doing a master's course in ICT. And the one aspect of that modular course that really appealed to me was all around user-centered design and that aspect of it. So on the back of that, I actually moved into UCD as my kind of space, usability, HCI. and worked mm. with Morgan Stanley and a few other companies before actually going and undertaking research at a university in London. And what really morphed out of that was we obtained a big project for the Disability Rights Commission in the UK at the time. 
And we undertook a survey of, I think it was about 1,000 websites, and it was the biggest study ever undertaken into web accessibility. Now, this was back in 2002, 2003, mm. um, so quite a while ago now. And really on the back of that, we ended up uh, starting up our own company and worked there. And we were very much kind of usability stroke accessibility and really trying to weave accessibility into everything we did. But we were working with your big online retailers and their main focus was we want to move a button from here to here because that would increase our clicks and what can we do with retention rates. And I think for myself and the rest of the guys in this business, we were like, do you know what? We like the accessibility bit. We like that because that really makes a difference rather than just a pure commercial aspect of mm. what usability was at that time. So over the pathway from there to where I am now, I worked on a lot of EU projects and you know saw some great insights and great work that was coming through. Then came to Australia 10 years ago now, joined Vision Australia, expected to be there for six months. <laughs> um, like a lot of us when we join an organization, um, but the opportunities and the work and the people who you're working there with um, is what's kept me there ever since. We've morphed a lot of times uh, through that period with the work that we do from just doing standard audits to lots of work around inclusive design and working actually directly now with clients at very early stages through code reviews to where we are at the moment. So yeah, it's been a journey and it's, it's forever changing and mm. the landscape and the environment and technologies are moving so fast, especially in the last two years. Mm. Yeah, it's an exciting time. It really is. Mm. It's great background. I had, yeah, I didn't realise how sort of far back that goes too, Neil. That's I'm really interested in what Australia looked like 10 years ago, but we'll get there. Uh, Chris. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, you know, I, I came to Vision Australia for probably a year and I've been here now 24 years. So uh, it's, a, it's obviously... Me, <laughs> just, just calling that out. <laughs> yeah, so it's obviously a good place to, to, to work. No, yeah, so I originally came to Vision Australia in a role as an assistive technology consultant, so a person that specialises in providing uh, the technical support and the training for people that use uh, the various assistive technologies to access, you know, online mm. uh, websites. Back then, you know, it was very much about accessing, you know, fundamental systems in businesses, Microsoft Office, etc. Mm. And so from that journey, I sort of, we became and, and, and did a whole lot of management roles and then sort of headed up some uh, areas of development in client services and now I'm um, moved into a government relations and advocacy role and so we're here to help the community and to government and to others understand what some of the barriers are that are, are facing people with blind and low vision to be able to offer solutions whether that's through consultancy work that Neil and the team do or whether it's through, you know, just helping them understand this is their obligations, this is some solutions on how, how you can um, improve things, um, in order to, to make, you know, the community, to make business, to make, you know, the things that we do every day as people are blind and low vision, straightforward and, and accessible the same way as for other people. Well, that's brilliant, Chris. You've seen quite a, quite a gamut. <laughs> yeah, when I uh, first started uh, in the technology thing, Windows wasn't even uh, very much present. <laughs> it was like uh, it was a, an old DOS system and, and what was interesting, and, and I think this mm. is the, the interesting thing about assistive technology and accessibility is that you would expect that compared to 25 years ago, things just keep improving. Um, I think one of the challenges that we see is that 
you know, the mainstream technologies keep advancing and become more and more, I suppose, graphical and using images and stuff mm. to be able to do things, which is actually making sometimes it harder. So you've got to, you know, really blend that, um, you know, the, the assistive technology needs to keep up with the mainstream and people's way of working needs to keep up too. So it's, um, it, it's a challenge. Yeah, the DOS. Um, I just you just I just realised it because when I first started using a computer, I, I know I used um, I had the keyboard shortcut thing. There was no mouse. Yeah. Um, showing my age. <laughs> um, but yeah, I used all the function keys. I had my little th shortcut thing on the. And yeah, from a screen reader perspective, it's kind of well. Yeah. Anyway, I can see how it, it was probably a, an improved experience or more accessible anyway. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. it was a simple text oh. and yeah. Uh, yeah, the technology could oh. be fairly simple to be able to interact with that. And then yeah. as we move forward, you know, everyone's wanting to get, as Neil said, that sort of commercial edge to build that new feature oh. that no one else has got. And sometimes they don't think about um, mm -hmm. yeah, the needs of people like myself and people um, with oh. the who blind and low vision. Yeah. yeah, speaking on language, I know Kat was really, she had a really interesting question for me the podcast and I thought let's ask it in the podcast. <laughs> yeah so what we were talking about was one of the aims that we have with these podcasts about accessibility is making sure that we're equipping people who are listening to the podcast with the right language to talk about accessibility requirements um, and language that's respectful and, and empowering for the communities we're discussing. Chrissy said uh, blind and low vision is that the that's the preferred term for the community or what yeah. kind of language? I mean, it, it does vary across the world. You know, I think the, the, the most important thing is that you often talk about, you know, the person before the disability. So, you know, for someone like myself, I want to be known as Chris, the cool guy that does cool things, <laughs> compared to there's that blind guy, Chris. And so, you know, I think most people want to be defined by who they are rather than by their disability. And so one of the key things when we're talking about languages, you know, person before disability. Right. And so the way that, you know, Vision Australia and, and others would advocate, we'd say, you know, when you're referring to it, it'd be someone who's blind or vision impaired. And so, you know, it's the person first and then the blind or low vision. Um, but, you know, in America, uh, there's a people use visually impaired, whereas, mm. you know, my interpretation of visually impaired is someone that might be a bit ugly. <laughs> that was cool. <laughs> For anyone listening in America, I uh, hope you enjoy yeah. that joke. <laughs> I love it. It's great. Uh, and I, I was interested, I know I shared uh, some topics to discuss, and I was really interested in what the Australian landscape looks like from an ex. Well, and, and let's talk too, I should define this. We're probably going to focus more so on um, digital accessibility is for the discussion and, and certainly there's a lot of um, technologies outside of just digital for accessibility. But from a digital accessibility point of view, is there any point of interest of, for Australia? Like where do we stand? Are, there, are we kind of streets ahead? Are we fairly progressive? I was interested, Neil, when you shared coming here 10 years ago and joining an organisation like Vision Australia and you'd already done a lot of work and research, what did it look like in, in Australia? Like how do we stand internationally? I think um, certainly one of the things 10 years ago coming and working in the digital space was UX was in its infancy in Australia. It was um, people started whacking it on the back of their title saying I'm a UX designer. Yeah. But I don't really think people really understood quite what that was. It just became a bit of a buzzword, you know, eight, 10 years ago. Mm. 
And at that time there, we hadn't really moved into the online e-commerce space either. I mean, mm. the, the big stores that you'd have expected then, Myers, Bunnings, and all of these kind of big organizations who have an online retail shop didn't. They had these PDF kind of brochures that you could swipe through losing yes. the suit yep. at the time, which were totally inaccessible to someone like Chris to actually access. So I think we were somewhat in our infancy, but then technology-wise or, you know, development-wise, and that we kind of jumped forwards fairly quickly. And we almost kind of leapfrogged the e-commerce and we developed an app to go with it at the same time. So Australia certainly started catching up quick. In the accessibility space, guidelines were fairly weak. We worked with the Australian government, and this was back in uh, 20. 12, I think it was, or 2010, which was around the National Transition Strategy. And that was really about, we need a formal government approach to mandate accessibility going forwards. Now, in the UK, the way that we often sold accessibility, or we certainly got the buy-in, was really around user testing. It was getting someone like BP to sit there with you, with people with different disabilities, and witness exactly them trying to use your product, and suddenly that light bulb moment was there. Wow, we're upsetting mm. these barriers unknowingly, unconsciously, but mm. we can now see that people with different adaptive strategies, different access needs, can't actually use the applications and the systems we're putting in front of them. In Australia, at that time there, when we actually endorsed a national transition strategy, we realised that usability was something which was going to be really hard to actually test. So we went down the route of saying, okay, it's got to be web content accessibility guidelines conformance, so WCAG as it's known. Mm. And it was WCAG 2.0 to level AA, and that is what the standards became, which was great. We actually had, you know, a mandate. And at that time there, Australia pushed ahead, you know, big confidence. So we pushed ahead more than any other country. So mm. around, the, you know, 2013, 2014 mark. The challenge that fell out the back of that, though, was when the transition strategy came to an end, from a government perspective, we didn't really move forwards. The Digital mm. Transformation Agency was started, and that embraced a whole notion of inclusive design. But nothing else has really moved forwards at that mm. time. So we're kind of locked now into these standards, and that is what people regard as accessibility. Mm. It's about ticking boxes against standards. And I think, therefore, we've, we've had a bit of catching up to do. And we've done that more in the last 18 months. Organisations, or certainly big enterprises, are beginning to realise that, OK, these technical standards, they get you so far on the journey. But this actually is about end users. And we do need to progress forward. So as far as standards go, Australia at the moment, we have two kind of, I guess, core policies. One thing is around the government and the Human Rights Commission have both adopted the WCAG standards mm. I mentioned, still mm -hmm. to level 2.0 and um, up to level AA. We've also got the ICT, Accessible Procurement of Software and Hardware, mm. which is an Australian standard, which is a basically a lift and shift copy of what they have in the EU, which is really good because if the whole of the EU is saying to big software vendors and hardware companies, you've got to meet these standards, then it's great if Australia is saying exactly the same thing because then it's obviously more power for them to actually make these required changes. So we've got some good standards out there, but they have fallen behind. They have gone out of date somewhat. WCAG now is up to level or specification 2.1. Mm. In the States, pretty much that is being adopted and moving in that direction, though not officially under Section 508 yet. Mm. 
in Europe and the UK, they've already moved to 2.1. The Australian standards over here are looking at moving their ICT procurement standards to the next version, version 2.2, which is looking at 2.1 as a standard. Now, if they do that, that leaves the Australian government and the human rights in a bit of a position because no longer do they align with an Australian standard. So we would certainly hope that would kind of push them up to that next level as well. And during that process, they can revise some of the other advice that they really are providing because it's certainly from the Human Rights Commission perspective, 2014 was the last update that they made. And we need to kind of get this charged and moving again because it's kind mm. of fallen off a little bit in the last five years. So many challenges there and, and a lot of yeah, good work happening in isolation, but it's yeah, sort of um, more across the board thinking and design and procurement can drive that. Um, yeah. Really interesting what you're saying then, Neil. I haven't, haven't really yeah, understood that procurement side of it, but that's a, that's a mm. you know, money talks, doesn't it? Yeah, mm. and it's, a, it's certainly something that from a government relations and advocacy point of view, we've been doing a lot of work with both state governments and uh, the federal government who have got sort of different procurement guidelines and, you know, there's sometimes a bit of debate whether uh, there's, they're actually mandatory or not. Mm. And one of the challenges is just that awareness for, for two things is that accessibility is one of the standards that, you know, people have to meet when they are purchasing products from vendors. Mm. And then even if they do understand it, to actually understand, to, to be able to figure out what that means. Because, um, you know, in my experience, if you ask a vendor, do you meet the accessibility requirements, almost every time they'll say yes. When, when it comes to, and after installing and somebody with a, um, who's with blind or low vision or with a disability uses it with some assistive technology that doesn't work, oh, it's a bit of a surprise for everybody. It's a surprise for the government agency that has purchased this. The vendor's going, oh, I can't believe that. And I think that the, the critical thing about it is, is that, you know, if you have these procurement guidelines, that there's a process to actually test it, to say, okay, what testing is being done by people with a disability at some point to, to ensure that you're meeting those standards? So, yeah, running those tests up front <coughs> is hugely important. I, I remember um, working in the e-learning space for a lot of years, so it was some time ago, but we, one of the big four banks in Australia took accessibility um, very seriously and, and really put us as a vendor through our paces. They'd run tests on our work, so creating e-learning training modules, you know, and they'd run these tests with a, a two-way mirror, you know, and be observing uh, people. So it was really user experience across the board as well as, access, you know, all accessibility is a part of that. Yeah. Anyway, so they took it very seriously, but I guess the ironic thing is that I found we were doing, we were making training accessible for systems that weren't accessible <laughs> in the first place, right? So we sort of pull our hair out a bit in the office going, well, hold on, we're doing screen capture stuff here or creating something for something that doesn't even pass colour contrast testing, let alone probably be accessible from assistive technologies. For those wanting more accessible workplaces, so we and, and we see that with certain um, clients, I guess they're, they're really proactive. Do you have any tips which would help them communicate this? So from a like a burning platform point of view, you know, like what can what, if I'm a learning and development professional within a large organisation, whether that be government, higher ed, or enterprise, are there any sort of tips that you could give them to go that help them um, communicate the the burning need for change? One of the main things definitely is awareness. 
it really is about driving awareness within an organisation. I don't believe that accessibility or inclusion that uh, people choose not to adopt. There was mm. one company I know that <laughs> went out its way not to, but that's another story. <laughs> we can't mention it there. I'll but talk to you about that later. Yeah, we can <laughs> But otherwise, you know, I think organisations do, but it's an awareness, yeah. I think. And the other thing as well is mm. that accessibility is too hard. It's this big thing that we have to do, we don't know how to do it, and we haven't budgeted for it. And it takes extra time, and mm -hmm. therefore there's a bit of a, it's a myth really that mm -hmm. it adds so much extra to your work. So it's driving that awareness and driving that awareness so that organisations realise at the very outset, so around procurement, when they're going out to tender, um, that they need to include accessibility and build it in and build them insights in from the outset. That is certainly one of the key things with this. Yeah, and it's interesting as a learning designer and a project manager, quite often we'll speak to clients and we'll say to them, so what are your accessibility requirements for the project? And I think, oh, that's great. Yeah, let's let's do accessibility. It's okay. So what would you like us to do? And they kind of pause and they're not sure. And I think my overwhelming ex experience is when you raise the idea with people, they think that's a great idea, but they don't have the awareness to understand what that actually means in practice. So mm. awareness raising, I think, to that point is, is a really important part of the role that I play uh, in the company because mm. you know, I'll come back to them with you know, the A and the AA standards and what it means and what it means in terms of practical terms as well. So yeah, it's, it's about getting people to understand what accessibility means. Yeah, and, and I think you're right. I mean, I've, I deal with a lot of corporates that at a high level, they've got a disability action plan these days. You know, they, they've got some awareness about we need to do things better as an organisation to be more inclusive for people with a disability. However, when it yeah, comes to the specifics, it can be quite challenging because they're, they're unaware of what accessibility really means in a digital sense. And I think that, you know, the, the, the tip that I suppose it's sort of consistent with what Neil's saying is I always just say that, you know, you need accessibility as an essential part of design. So it mm. has to be thought of right at the start and not an afterthought. Um, you know, where I, I see issues where people are coming to us from an advocacy point of view saying, my employers just in um, release something and I used to be able to work, do my job and now I can't because the system is inaccessible, it's because the accessibility was seen as an afterthought. Oh, Jimmy, better, mm. you know, we've got Chris over there that is, might use it, it, it uses this system, how do we make it accessible? And it's when you think about it at the end point, that's when it becomes expensive, that's when it becomes a mm. lot of work, and that's when often the solution isn't as good as when you first design it up front. And that's such a negative for sort of move being progressive in this space too, because the negative then perception is accessibility is really expensive. And and that and the fact is that is a headache. If you haven't designed it with that up front and it is a problem for you, you know, that, that is a problem for accessibility. That is a headache. You know, there's a lot of work that perhaps needs to be done. So getting the design right up front is important. Well the work that we've done together with Vision Australia, I guess just, I, I'm just reflecting on it now, is the most recent project we're working on is really smart because we're consulting up front on what good design will look like from an accessibility point of view and the technologies we're using and how much we can take, how far we can take them. Um, so that design thinking's already there right at the start. And then I guess we get our audit from, you know, at the end, right? And, and make sure that we've done a good job. 
Yeah. Um, but we've, we've sort of consulted up front and it's not just the client working with a group like us and then they go, okay, now we're finished. Now let's use our partners at Vision Australia to let us know how we went. I like, I like one of the yeah. things that you said there. Yeah. One of the things that I continue to say to people is good design is good design. So mm. good design mm. is accessible for all. It's not about having a design that's just inclusive. It's, a, it's probably making a better user experience for everybody. Yes. Absolutely. And that was one of the things I noticed when I first started researching on how to make my courses more accessible is how many of the accessibility guidelines are actually just good design practice um, and that they make the experience better for everyone. Yeah. Microsoft um, released a toolkit, the Microsoft Inclusive Design Toolkit, and this was a couple of years or so back now. And it's a great resource and it really kind of takes that to the next step. Um, I mean, Satya, the CEO of Microsoft, um, there was a, a LinkedIn poll of, you know, by key influencers. Mm. What are going to be the big themes and disruptors of 2019? And Microsoft, Satya said, it's going to be inclusive design. That is the one that he believes is going to be, you know, the growing theme this year. And with that inclusive design toolkit, it doesn't only present this is a challenge for someone which is blind, for instance, you know, who can't see. But this is also a challenge for someone with temporary impairments, whether they've got cataracts or something mm. else at that time, an injured eye. So the challenge mm. for them. And then there's mm. situational impairments as well. So when someone's driving, for instance, or they you know, don't have access, therefore, to look at the screen at that time, but they need to still know what that information is. So it's really about kind of taking this past just disability per se to temporary mm. to situational. And suddenly then you're moving from this 5% of the population, so 20% of the population with a registered disability to kind of mm. well over 57% of people, you know, which require it a lot more. And then anybody, because mm. anybody could have a situation at that time. So mm. inclusion really is, like Chris was saying there, good design is good design. It's going to help everybody, whatever their situation is, regardless of whether they actually have a disability or not. It's so true. What do you what do you guys see? I, I don't know if, there, if this is an easy answer. We'll see. But what's the greatest challenge for businesses? You think at businesses or higher ed, government to overcome in terms of meeting standards? You said earlier, Neil, that you know probably generally nobody's avoiding making something accessible. So what's the greatest challenge for them to meet standards like you know double A? Like I say, a lot of it is awareness. And once you have that awareness, then you can yep. hopefully get buy-in. We meet loads of accessibility champions, advocates, across government, across commercial, in education. A lot of the time they don't necessarily have the support of above. Now that support from above normally comes through a government mandate, you know, every website like the National yep. Transition Strategy put in place. Or quite often it can come through when they receive a complaint. Cole's been a very well-known one that received mm. a complaint and a, a lawsuit as such for not making them their services accessible. One of the great outcomes and advocates have been Coles always said this was that made the executive suddenly wake up to this. We need to do something and it wasn't a matter of well let's fix that individual problem. It was actually let's change our whole culture around inclusion. Mm. And they went back to the drawing board and inclusive design and accessibility really became core of all of their products going mm. forwards. Mm. Um, so that kind of that was a good trigger for them in the outcome of it. And awareness from top down. Awareness uh, from the yeah. top down. Yeah. A lot of it is training as well. Yeah. What we said before there about building it in from the outset, uh, there's quite a few different studies and graphs and etc. to kind of represent this, but 
if you think about it, if you're actually looking at the accessibility, nearly all issues are introduced at a design stage. That's mm. when we pick exactly, you know, what everything's going to look like, how it's going to go to the dev team, therefore how they're going to start building it and everything else. To actually address the accessibility issues or call them out at that time costs hardly anything. It's a lot easier to make changes when mm. they are just a sketch, you know, mm. when they're a wireframe or just even mm. a flat JPEG in a representation than what it is once you've actually then developed all the code and built it in. Mm. So what happens is we then go through, and if we address it then early, we can capture those issues, it costs virtually nothing. And at the end, yeah, we do a few checks, but there isn't really very much to change, mm. very much the process of what we're doing with you guys at the moment, yeah. Brendan. Yeah. Yeah. The alternative to that, and still what we see vastly, is that we ignore it at the design stage, we don't think about user requirements from a disability or inclusive perspective, and we build something and we introduce issue after issue after issue without realizing it. We get to mm. the end of the project and then we say, okay, now we need to make sure this thing's accessible. <laughs> and then you're paying for the cost of, you know, getting it assessed and identifying what those issues are. But we did work on one government health project and no lie, there was 200 people, they estimated devs, working on one big floor of this big building in Sydney just addressing accessibility issues with this very high profile project mm. and it took them a month 200 people for a month just trying to remove and rebuild it to make it accessible it was such a tight lockdown system it was a huge challenge now that is an extreme mm. that's the greatest extreme it's I've great that went to the on. effort but it's potentially potentially you know, yeah, yeah. It we is, all, a great thing for, it you know, is but yeah, yeah. yeah. The, you are introducing it so mm. It's around mm. building it in enough. It's around having mm. training. The other thing, mm. certainly with education, is that so much material is created by, of course, tutors, you know, internally. Mm. And if there isn't that awareness, there isn't accessible templates for people to be using, if there aren't tools to assist them, etc., then content is continually being created and pushed out that isn't accessible. We see case after case of this. And, Chris's uh, team did a big study a couple of years ago that really identified mm. some of this stuff. Um, but there was a case mm. just last week um, reported in the UK, the BBC reported on, mm. about uh, a gentleman who'd just gone through his law degree and um, said you know, less than 3% of the information of all of the reading criteria was ever in an accessible format wow. for him to actually use. So he had this continual challenge of actually just trying to get the resources and when he did get them, they, he might get, you know, one of the, let's say, 20 resources, but it would come maybe three months into the course before it came in a format that he was actually able to use. Mm. So when him, he, uh, he delivered his uh, thesis at the end, he actually got marked down for using too many alternative resources, but he had to because they <laughs> wow, were the only yeah, ones he yeah, could wow, use. Wow. The, the side effect of this yeah. was not only was this gentleman discriminated against, not only was it huge hassle for himself and I'm sure for the L&D team and a diversity mm. team at the university mm. but you know he's now said you know he's, he's had depression and lots of other kind of you know impacts on his life as a result of going mm. through something which had never been in place. And surely he's not, not alone oh. either you know that's that's sort of highlighted that issue and I guess is that the, the study um, Chris that you did can you tell us that, is that the higher ed yeah. uh, 2017? Yeah, yeah. In, in higher ed and certainly we had a study that looked at students that have experienced at 24 of our universities. Mm. Consistently, consistently, it was people saying, 
yeah, this was yeah, it, very difficult. It was um, you know it made made my life much harder. And a lot of them said, I, I never ever want to go back and study again. And yeah, and mm -hmm. and you know you would be hoping that you know the university the experience would be is that that was thought provoking, that was challenging, that was inspiring. You know, I, I, yeah. I you know, I'm now, you know, want to be a thought leader in this area, but, you know, people are coming out and, and it's simple things like, you know, the, the discussion boards, the collaborative tools that now part of every course, the online component, the digital component of, of, of university study isn't an optional thing anymore. It's yeah, embedded in in everything that they do. It's growing so yeah. so much. We we see that with what we do. We're getting so much more work in that space. So we yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. for people not to be able to participate. We mm. had you know one student that says I could never look at my marks because the system that you know that displayed my grades um, was inaccessible. And you know, and I think that that's, that's nuts. You're going to show your grades to somebody else, and you like they read it out. You're like, oh, no, 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 mum, no. Well, yeah, that's all right. That's all right. And what we do know is that how important education is, and you know, people that have got a tertiary education who are blind and low vision are much more likely to be in a job. Mm. So, 75% of people that have a tertiary qualification are in work, but 58% of people who are blind and low vision are not in work. It is such an important thing, but we just can't, you know, we, we, we're working with um, Universities Australia and, and, and other bodies to try and look at how we can influence to improve it. But I think that that's where things like, you know, better standards in ICT procurement yeah. is to say that, you know, there's a common platforms that, you know, these universities use for discussion boards and, and for collaborative tools and saying, well, hold up, we're all spending a lot of money with you, um, vendor that provides mm -hmm. this, um, let's make it accessible because it's going to be good for everybody. And what a challenge! And, and those vendors too, they do. Um, it is a bit ubiquitous where they they get it, or ubiquitous probably not the best word, but they get a big share of the market. Mm -hmm. um, we're seeing, um, you know, say Canvas is used within a lot of Australian universities, and I guess Blackboard in the past yep. was, and those types of uh, even Moodle as one as well. And I, we don't need to explore how accessible they are. But if they're not that accessible, what a great differentiator. I guess there's such a good opportunity too for Australian higher ed right now as they, they're really putting the foot down in their digital work. So they have had forums for a long time and probably a lot of just online reading material, to be honest. I think yeah. for a long time yeah. that's their digital site and forums. Yeah. It's now getting much more serious. They're starting to really produce a lot of micro-credentials and, and purely online training at a, yeah. at a higher standard too. Yeah. In doing that though, it's sort of what you talked to earlier, Chris, in, in doing that, they're probably also, a, as a business, they're trying to differentiate their online courses as better. And so they're looking for visual stuff to differentiate themselves. As a, a, and we hope that they, anyway, there's a great opportunity for them to take into account accessibility. Um, and, and good design is good design from the start for everybody. Exactly. Yeah. Like you're saying there, you know, Brandon, hmm. there's, there's so many online now courses and therefore attracting international students yeah. to some of the great, you know, education resources and courses that we provide in Australia. Mm. But we don't always know what someone's disability is. 70% of disabilities are invisible. So, you know, you wouldn't necessarily mm. know looking at someone that mm. they had, you know, any impairment or access need there. Um, but we need to take that into consideration. 
and it could be great stuff, you know, around cognitive, you know, alone. There's mm. so many things that people can do to actually assist it and make it so much better. Mm. And that is good design, mm. essentially, you know, that's what it all comes down to. But mm. they're not, they're not adhered to, they aren't followed through, and therefore we present these barriers continually. And there's a huge market out there. And, you know, organizations are recognizing it. Study from the, from the UK again, um, that came out. This study anyway kind of looked at kind of the behavioral and the e-commerce habits and the you know normal kind of brick shopfront habits of people with disabilities. 80% of people with a disability, certainly in this study from the UK, said that they would actually choose a website which provided them the best user experience over one which was cheaper. So as just pure mm. examples, they will go to Amazon, for instance, because they find it easier to use than going to Booktopia, which has cheaper products, yeah. but they find it more challenging. So there's, there's a massive market, and mm. that comes down to when people choose universities as well. Which ones are going to provide the support that I need going forwards with mm. that? And it's something that we continually hear from the diversity officer, etc. at universities about mm. we've got to up our game because we realize that X, Y, and Z are attracting a lot more students mm. and they can support students where English is a second language a lot more than what we can at the moment. We need to build inclusion into a core aspect of our courses. Mm. So I guess the following question from that is how do we as educators advocate for better accessibility in the courses and it kind of links back to what we were saying before about it needing to be supported from the top down. How would you recommend someone, if someone's listening to this podcast and they think, great, I'm going to go into work tomorrow and talk to my boss about making this more accessible and starting to use accessible design. How would you recommend they advocate? Chris? Well, you know, I, I think, you know, it's not a good thing to have. It's, it's a right. The Convention for Human Rights for People with a Disability has a whole section that focuses on education because we know that that's important. So to not have things accessible, you're certainly not only breaching somebody's rights, you're actually um, breaking the law. Um, you know, there is the Dis Disability Discrimination Act that says that somebody with a disability can't be treated less favourably than somebody without a disability. And you know, clearly, if you've got you know, a, a person with a disability who can't access a course and a person with a disability that, uh, without the disability that can, there's an issue. And so it's not about sort of threatening about, you know, the, waving the law in front of people, but to say, well, hold up, it's, it, it, it makes good business sense because you know, it's going to be more attractive to get a wider pool of people that might want to come to our, our learning place of learning. It'll make learning better for yeah, everybody because it's good design is good design. And it'll ensure that we actually are compliant with you know, the, the various legislation within Australia that um, supports people with a disability. It definitely supports too the um, camaraderie and morale within an organisation and being an employer of choice, um, knowing that 
your organisation cares about the wider community and potentially new employees and all of their employees is, is anyway, I think that message is, yeah. is a really powerful one. For the last few sort of questions while we've got you here, I, I know that, that you guys have worked in this space for a long time and the work that you do with what Vision Australia can offer too. Probably, I don't think everybody, people listening, might not be aware of the diversity and the support sort of tools that you have within that organisation and other tools that you're not. So I just wanted to get kind of tactical of going, what are the things we can do and use and tools and things you might be able to give us some hot tips? So the first question would be, if there's one reasonably easy thing that people could do within their organisations, because we know the starting point isn't great a lot of the time, to create more accessibility so they're not boiling the ocean. What's that one easy thing you think that everyone could just do do better? But I think one of the, the best things to do is if you have someone in your organisation which has got a disability or you've got stu- you know, students, if you could actually get their feedback, if you can actually get them and you witness mm-hmm. them using your applications. Mm-hmm. Now I'm not trying, one of the things to kind of big caveat around this is mm-hmm. People with a disability don't like to be kind of pulled in and go, hey, you're, you are a token person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what's yeah, right. But to actually get that awareness, to get that insights, to understand how that one individual, and not everybody navigates the same. You or I would not browse the same on a website. Quite, True. you know, we may well yeah. browse in different ways. There'll be, Chris may use a JAW screen reader, and mm. we could have another four people here using a draw screen reader and one might navigate via headings and one might navigate via landmarks and one will read down. There's lots of variances between technologies, but to get the insights even of one person to understand mm. what the problems are, I think is that moment. And that can be pushed back upwards as well because mm. the more people, if you video that or, you know, mm. you can get them insights further up, you can't deny, you can't argue with the facts that someone right. cannot use yours. Mm. These automated tools, some of the, a lot of them are free. Now, mm. an automated tool will only check about 40% of guidelines, but they are great to give an indication of how your mm. application, etc., you know, how good Moodle is that you've implemented. Is it throwing up any issues? If so, okay, it's thrown up, you know, five issues and we mm. passed 10 things, that's great. We've got 150 warnings here, and those warnings are all potential issues, but the tool can't actually check. So you've got a lot of things there, potentially that are presenting mm. barriers. So that gives you a good insight as well into how you're mm. actually faring. Can you share, do you know the name of that tool or can, can I, I just put, I'll put a link up with this post with the podcast of a range of tools, but that's just to be clear for, yeah. that, that's a tool that tests your website or anything online, right? It, it, it can test the digital accessibility. Yeah. Anything which yeah. is yeah a website, it can test, most of the mm. free ones will test a page, but mm. there are lots of different ones, HTML, Sniffer, mm. um, Microsoft has just released one recently. Microsoft's tool and lots of the others are actually using a checking engine called Axe, which is available on GitHub mm. and forever, you know, community, open source, adding to it and improving it. Um, but yeah, I can certainly give you the links to include with this. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, and, and I'll put the uh, Microsoft Inclusive Design Toolkit as well. Yeah. Yeah, this, so I guess there's some go-to tools for digital design and testing. There are. There's, yeah. um, I mean, to work as well in that kind of policy space, we've done a lot of work with South Australian government mm. and um, they've created a toolkit um, which essentially has lots of different resources and links off 
and it really kind of breaks it up by roles. So this is for content, this is for your visual, you know, designer, this is for your developer, etc. So what actually applies to them? What resources, what information they need to use as well? What South Australian government has done so amazingly with this as well, they've actually now developed a web design system, which now we see continually across the board, mm. where organisations you know, are actually creating their one living style guide as such, with mm. all of their varied components on and ensuring that they're accessible, and then they can be reused and their templates can be reused and they know they've got that tick of approval as such. Mm. They've developed that, which isn't unusual in itself. What is really great with what they've done though is they've addressed it from the view of accessibility and inclusion at the heart of it. Mm. From the very outset, that was a driving force and then the business needs and everything else was met alongside all of that. Mm. So they've got a really good um, platform now for South Australian government going forward. Are they sharing that with other government agencies? They are. Yeah. They've, um, I mean, New South Wales, we were in with them the other day. Mm. They're very keen on adopting it, so is federal government. But they've got the UK government as well now looking to say, hey, can we copy this? Uh, Canadian government is working very closely with them saying, mm. you've got the resource, can we uh, share this Are they sharing it with business too? Is it something that... Totally. totally. Yeah. It's really, it's been put out there for everybody to use and, hey, add to it. We can keep improving. I think the really accessibility, the inclusive design, you know, just to kind of, I guess, um, identify what the real difference is. There's lots of different interpretations of exactly what these are. I think the simplest way is accessibility is what we regard really as as the technical requirements, we could say, the WCAG guidelines, mm -hmm. and it's really around ensuring that assistive technologies will work with the website and other user agents. I mm -hmm. think that's how people view accessibility, whereas inclusive design is really pushing accessibility to one side and saying, let's just build and design things for everybody. And it's a lot more wider, so the actual uh, audience there is huge, it's everyone, rather than this kind of discrete. And it's a good user experience too. I know um, working in the space, we've created, well, some of the best feedback we ever got was from Vision Australia. It was years ago, but we heard one, one of your testers was testing a course we'd built, and yeah. you'd really pushed us a, a long way. And we, we do good, we've always prided ourselves in accessibility. If we're doing custom work from HTML, it's a lot easier. What the feedback was is I think the user was um, blind or vision impaired and he said, this took me about as long as what it took our sighted users. And it's one of the first times that's happened with an e-learning course. Mm. And I thought that's really cool because it was calling out that it was a good user experience. Uh, it, yes, yeah. we're checking, you, you were auditing it, the course a bit on uh, your meeting guidelines, but it was actually feedback that was going, no, you've created a good user experience, which was just inclusive design, Neil. Yeah, yeah exactly. And that's yeah. the ultimate measure. That was very cool. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. So there's a list of different resources, and we've got lots of free tools on mm. our website. Mm. One which um, we actually, uh, there's quite a few universities already use, and other mm. government mm. Uh, departments is, we have a tool called a document accessibility toolbar. And essentially, it's just a ribbon that, or, that fits into Microsoft Word. And it enables you, or supports you, let's say, to create accessible Word documents. And when we think about so much of the information that we create starts off as a Word document, and then it gets converted to PDF, or it gets converted to HTML. Mm. And if we actually get everybody in the organization, everyone in the university, to start creating mm. accessible Word documents, so we add alternative text for images mm. when we put them in, if we're using proper heading styles, 
etc. Then once this gets converted to the other formats, that semantic markup carries through. And therefore your web developers don't have a lot to do when mm. they're putting that content into HTML. Or if it's getting made into a PDF, it's so, only some minor yeah. remediation. It really is, I think, getting down. And word know, is so used, isn't it? Totally, so yeah. that making documents accessible is kind of the, yeah. one of the, that, that makes a big impact, I imagine. It's sort of a low-hanging fruit. And if you use styles in Word documents too, it, it actually makes your life easier. It does. Um, for, so you've you just got to get to that point it, as opposed to bolding every separate heading, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. yeah. It yeah. is. I mean, if we can drive that awareness and it becomes business as usual, then we talked before about, you know, executive buy-in, but if we can actually drive accessibility from the ground upwards, mm. that everyone just does it as part of their normal day-to-day -day and their awareness grows as a result, and mm. already we're actually creating a much better experience for mm. all of our customers and colleagues, then I think we're on a really good pathway. And there's a lot of organisations and educational institutions that are starting to really take this on board now and saying, hey, let's find more tools that we can do to actually make this easier. We'll definitely put a link to the document accessibility toolbar and other just hot links to make people's this this work easier to share. I really love the fact that you've told me how to say uh, WCAG. <laughs> <laughs> so I've kind of claimed through this podcast that I've done a bit of work with accessibility, but I must admit, I stumble over that word still all the time. I, and so I, I'll, sometimes I roll with WCAG, yeah. you know, 2.0 or, or, or WCAG. Um, and I don't know whether WCAG, you know, like why we say it that way. Some acronyms are tough. But anyway, Neil, thank you. That's, That's um, <laughs> I'm sure that a lot of American listeners are probably calling it WCAG. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. Or 508 compliance. Which yeah, yeah anyway. exactly. There is actually a non-508 yeah. compliance, just, mm. you know, to put a bit of perspective around mm. this. Mm. Um, we talked about what the legal situation is and completely rightly, as Chris said, we, we don't want that big hammer, that stick. Yeah. What we want is people to recognise the other social, commercial, business benefits from mm. doing this. But on that legal side of it, there was um, estimated to be over 10,000 lawsuits you know, in the US last year related around to web accessibility. Lots of them were due um, or in line with education institutions. And it's lots of high profile ones. You only do you know, search online and you'll see them popping out everywhere that have really had to address it. We don't have that same approach in Australia, which I think is a great thing. But, you know, we need to keep this in mind, you know, of what's gone mm. on there. Mm. It, it can quite easily happen over here in the next year or two, should, you know, kind of some of this, um, you know, some mm. changes happen in law or different approaches mm. with our culture around lawsuits, etc. change. So, that doesn't mean that ours are any better than what they are in the US. I think that we just need to get on the front foot and have a different approach about mm. addressing it. That's brilliant. I, I just wanted to say thanks for uh, joining us again, guys. I think we've sort of covered a lot of ground and some hot tips and, yeah, really, really valuable podcast. Thanks. Welcome. Absolute pleasure.